This podcast is a part of Sphera, a collective of independent media outlets from across Europe. For more information, visit sphera-hub.com. a big old week here at the Europeans. First, we did our very first live show in Amsterdam, which was super fun. And then... Yes, very exciting week. I've just learned that I'm now French listeners. Je suis française. Félicitations. Is that what you say? <laughs> yes, well done. Thank you. Yeah, how does it feel, Katie? Do, do, is, is life different as a French person? Oh, it's very different. You know, obviously, I automatically became like 20% more stylish and like went on strike immediately. Um, no, it, it just feels like really good and exciting and quite emotional, really. Yeah. Like just to know that I'm not going to get kicked out of this country that I have made my home. You're stuck with me now, France. Um, and also, it's really nice to feel really European again. Not that you have to be an EU citizen to call yourself European, because I really don't think that. But it is amazing to know that I can move freely around 27 countries again and that feels like an even bigger privilege to have had that taken away because of brexit and then reinstated uh, so yeah i feel very lucky yeah you had like seven months where you weren't an eu citizen and now you're going to be one again forever can they take it away from you actually um i think maybe if i'm very naughty but i'm obviously not planning on doing that uh, so yeah now i'm french and you're german that does give this podcast a little bit of extra european street cred i think now that it's not just two brits anymore i guess so it's kind of a shame we chose the two like behemoths of the eu we are the franco-german motor it has been said anyway enough about my good news what's been going on with you well i'm currently puppy sitting so yes. um if you hear any yelps in the background that's little frankie who's very tiny little miniature poodle from my next door neighbours. And uh, I love it, but um, this is a bit of an experiment to see whether I can podcast with a puppy in the room next door. Puppies and passports aside, uh, what are we talking about this week? Well, it's been about a week and a half since the German election ended, and we thought it was a good time to look back at exactly what happened. I'm sure most of you saw the headlines that the Social Democrats made a pretty extraordinary comeback to end up the biggest party. But what else happened? And what does this election mean for the direction of Germany? We're going to be speaking to the German election forecaster and political scientist Arndt Leiniger later in the show. But first, it's time for... We had a lot of options for bad week this week. Um, there were British drivers who have had to queue for hours for petrol due to gas shortages. Emmanuel Macron, who's been accused of insulting Algeria. Oh, and Shakira, who I know she's Colombian, but she lives in Barcelona. And uh, apparently she was attacked by wild boars last week. That was so bad. I know. What is going on with the world? Anyway, we were really tempted to talk about all of them and more and call this episode just bad week, bad week, bad week, bad week, bad week. But that would have been a bit of a downer. And I um, made Katie choose one bad week. Who did you go with? I have given the honour of the one and only bad week slot to Andrei Babish, Prime Minister of the Czech Republic. 
we talked about him before on this podcast. He is a billionaire populist. The world just can't get enough of those, apparently. And why has it been a bad week for him, you ask? Well, Babish is one of the many rich and powerful people whose name has come up in a big international media investigation that has been making waves this week, the Pandora Papers. Uh, You've been taking quite an interest in all of this, haven't you, Dominic? Yeah, I have. My brother's actually been working on it for the BBC, so... It's been quite nice to read some of his work. Um, And yeah, there are some wild stories there. People are just doing terrible things with their money still and trying to avoid paying taxes. When is this going to stop? When is it going to stop? So the Pandora Papers, just in case you haven't been following, it is an investigation based on a huge collection of leaked documents that show how 35 current and former world leaders have used tax havens and offshore companies to move their assets around to their advantage and avoid tax and sometimes just pretend that these assets don't exist altogether. Uh, And just to be clear, Babish is not the only European implicated in the scandal. This whole thing is also making some headlines over there in the Netherlands, I think? Yes, uh, Wopke Hoekstra, who is the Dutch finance minister, has been making headlines for investing in a safari company that was an offshore company and he says he didn't realise and he sold his shares anyway before he became a minister. So he's not getting in as much trouble as some of his foreign counterparts, but it is still stirring things up a bit. Other Europeans named in these papers include the president of Cyprus, Nikos Anastasiades, John Daly, Maltese former EU health commissioner. Uh, Vladimir Putin isn't named in the documents himself, but he is linked in them to some secret assets in Monaco. And also, having a truly terrible week after she was attacked by wild boars, Barcelona resident Shakira came up in these papers. She was also in the Panama Papers, wasn't she? Yeah, I mean, we already knew that Shakira has been using some uh, creative accounting over the years because she previously got into a lot of trouble in Spain for not paying, I think it was about 14 million euros in taxes that she owed. So that bit isn't really that new. And perhaps the scandal as a whole is not really that surprising. Rich people are always going to use some of their money to pay clever accountants to help them keep as much of their money as possible. We talked about this issue on the podcast literally just a few weeks ago. Uh, But to get back to Mr. Babish, I do think his part of the story is genuinely scandalous. What did he actually do? Well, it turns out that he purchased a really very nice chateau in the south of France. Uh, chateau Bigot, it's called. It's in a village called Mougin, which is where Picasso lived for the final years of his life. Fun detail. Mm. Uh, Babish spent 15 million euros buying the chateau and some other properties in Mougin, which you might think is fair enough. You know, he is, after all, a very, very wealthy man. He rose up during the 90s, like a lot of oligarchs from former communist Eastern European countries, by being there at the right time and managing to take over a state-owned chemicals business at rock-bottom prices. So he's rich, and rich people buy property. So what? The thing is, Babish never disclosed publicly that he owned these properties. As a senior politician in the Czech Republic, he's supposed to be transparent about his assets. And these properties have until now been a secret. And didn't Babish campaign like on a platform to stop tax avoidance? Yes, this is precisely the point. So Andrei Babish is one of these billionaire politicians who has somehow managed to build a political platform on railing against the elite despite the fact that he has a ton of money and actually grew up in quite a lot of privilege. Uh, His dad was a senior communist official and he went to fancy schools in like Paris and Geneva. 
he does nonetheless cast himself as a man of the people. And indeed, something that he's campaigned about very energetically is the need for his country to stop the elite from evading taxes so that there's more money for public services. Uh, just to be clear, it isn't possible to prove that the goal with this French chateau purchase was to avoid paying taxes. But we can say that lots of complicated steps have been taken to buy it and to hide the fact that he bought it. And the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, who are the reporters coordinating this big investigation, they interviewed a tax expert who said that this whole chateau arrangement could have lowered Babish's tax bill and hidden the property from the public at the same time. So if the goal was to avoid paying taxes, I mean, the hypocrisy of it would be absolutely mind-blowing. And it's pretty bad timing for him, right? It, there's an election in the Czech Republic at the end of this week. Mm-hmm. Yep, so the elections are on Friday and Saturday. Uh, we're recording this a little bit earlier than that. And at the time of recording, the polls do seem to have tightened a little bit since the news broke. But Babish's party, the ANO, they're still a good five points ahead. And right now, no one seems to think that this scandal is going to hurt him too much. His supporters have also forgiven him for lots of things before, you know, and I don't think this whole thing is that shocking to Czechs. You might remember that a couple of years ago, Babish survived these really big street protests over another scandal relating to his finances. That time it was about allegations that the massive conglomerate that he owns uh, had done lots of complicated accounting so that it could claim EU subsidies for small businesses. That whole thing was really mad. His political opponents are certainly trying to make a big deal of the revelations about the chateau, quite rightly. And there have been some quite good lines coming out of the opposition. One MP tweeted that Babish has been collecting criminal cases like their Pokemon. And Babish is now under investigation over this by the Czech National Organised Crime Agency. So it's not like nothing is happening. But the general sense, ahead of the elections at least, is that this isn't going to hurt him at the polls very much. Has he actually responded to the allegations yet? Yes. So he has insisted that he's done nothing wrong and he has called this a smear campaign by the opposition ahead of the election. Uh, But mostly he's just been avoiding difficult questions. And there have been a couple of incidents caught on camera where journalists have tried to ask him for answers. And his, uh, what would you call him, his henchmen, I guess, have been quite heavy-handed in pushing these journalists away. His heavies. The heavies, yes, exactly. Um, So first there was a Czech reporter. She works for Investigatsa CZ, which is the Czech partner in this investigation. Uh, And then a BBC reporter. The heavies just really, like really aggressively blocked these reporters from even trying to talk to the prime minister. So he clearly wants to avoid awkward questions about it. Just to finish off, uh, I generally think the journalists who've worked on this have done a really incredible job. And there are loads of different stories out there following the different threads of the Pandora Papers. But if you're interested in the Babish story in particular, there is a great deep dive on it on the ICIJ website. Yeah, it may be depressing that this is all still happening and powerful people are still trying to hide their money. But it's also really impressive that an organisation like the ICIJ is managing to get all these hundreds of journalists to work together and published stories simultaneously that have such an impact. Yeah, hundreds of great journalists, including a Kramer. So (laughs) good job, everyone. Um, Who's had a good week? 
I'm going a bit off-piste this week. I want to scrap Good Week and rename it Rogue Week. Okay. Yeah, it's thanks to some roguish behaviour of a Danish artist called Jens Hanning. So Jens was lent a big chunk of Danish kroner by the Kunstmuseum in Alborg, and this money was given to him so he could recreate two old artworks of his which would be displayed in the museum. The museum patiently awaited the delivery of these two known artworks, and two big artworks did arrive in the post, but as the curators unwrapped the artwork, they discovered that Jens had delivered two large empty frames. <laughs> it was not an incomplete work. It was a new artwork, as Jens claims, which he titled Take the Money and Run. That is an amazing title uh, for a work of modern art. What was the artwork that he was actually meant to be delivering? Well, this is why it's quite so audacious of Jens. The kroner that he'd been lent by the museum was actually meant to appear in the artwork itself. The original works that he signed a contract to recreate for the museum were two pieces, one called an average Danish annual income, which displayed 534,000 kroner in banknotes. That's around 54,000 euros on a canvas representing the average annual Danish income, as the title suggests. And the other was an Austrian variant on the same idea, which stuck euro notes to a canvas, adding up to the average Austrian income. So the kroner that the museum had given him was actually intended to be in the artwork itself. So it's a really bold move, then not using that money and just taking it and running. And I'm assuming that uh, he is claiming that this is some kind of artistic statement in itself, right? Running away with the money? Yeah, well, he's saying it's not theft. He said to Danish Radio, the work is that I have taken their money. It's not theft, it's breach of contract. And breach of contract is part of the work. I really like the idea of breaching a contract being an artistic statement. Fantastic. Um, I might use that in the future if anything ever goes wrong. Good reason for not paying your gas bill. Absolutely. He also then went on boldly to say, I encourage other people who have just as miserable working conditions as me to do the same. So despite the obvious humorous aspect of this piece, he is making a serious statement, or trying to anyway, about bad working conditions in the arts. And to be fair to him, That does tie in pretty well with the exhibition that these pieces were commissioned to appear in. It's an exhibition called Work It Out, which looks at the role of artists in the labour market. But are his working conditions actually that terrible? Well, that's something the museum have questioned. (laughs) They say that they are paying him according to the regular standardised rates set by the Danish Artists Association, which in this case, is the equivalent of around €3,000. So they think it's not really fair that they're being criticised for creating bad working conditions and they've accused Jens of breaking a contract. They also point out that they are not a wealthy museum. The museum director said to The Guardian that the money they lent him had been earmarked for upkeep of the museum and that they have very limited resources for that kind of work. So I have to say I felt a bit sorry for the museum when I read that. Oh, so just to clarify, the banknotes were going to be reusable afterwards. He wasn't like, I don't know, turning them into papier-mâché or something. Because I kind of thought originally that the idea of using money to make art with, if it was going to like cut the pieces of paper up, was kind of gross. But they were going to be reusable afterwards. Yeah, the idea was that the money was actually a loan and that once the exhibition closes in the middle of January, he was going to give it back. Mm -hmm. So... 
maybe he still will. We don't know. Perhaps this is just all a publicity stunt. Perhaps the museum are in on it. And um, maybe it is good week for the museum and for Jens because they're getting huge amounts of international publicity and I assume loads of visitors to come and see these two empty frames, which they are exhibiting. And that's a key point. Like if this went to court, if the museum took them to court, I think a judge would probably, I mean, I don't know anything about Danish law, but surely a judge would question but you did end up showing the artwork that he delivered and people did come and see it. So I imagine it would be quite a complicated legal question. The museum have said that they will have to take him to court if he doesn't return the money, but we won't find out until mid-January whether or not he does that. Mm. Um, one fear I've been, I heard from an artist friend this week was that it can be dangerous for artists to make a statement like this because it could be used by critics of state subsidies for arts to back up their arguments by saying, yeah, art is a waste of money. People take money and provide nothing. Mm. But on the other hand, Jens makes really serious points with this artwork, and it probably has got at least some people thinking about working conditions for artists. And this provocative work is what Jens Hanning is known for. He makes political statements with his work. I heard about a, an interesting artwork he made a while back called Foreigners Free, Beale swimming pool, which was just a regular public swimming pool, except for the fact that he organized that foreigners were allowed to enter for free. And I find this kind of work quite thought provoking and it's definitely roguish. So Jens gets rogue week and maybe we'll even slip it back to good week, seeing as he's had so much publicity. I don't know what to make of all of this, you know, at the risk of sounding like an uncultured job. Yeah, I'm a big fan of art in general, but I do think some modern art sometimes just takes the piss and this is a fantastic example of an artist like really successfully taking the piss and i just don't know what to do with it yeah but don't you think art is meant to make us question society and question the way we live and doesn't this artwork do exactly that i guess so but it also makes me think like (laughs) what a rogue you are jens i kind of think if he's going to have a face-saving solution to this, he needs to do something collective with the money, like give it to a union or something. Just an idea there, Jens. You can have that one for free. Jens could also give his money to the Europeans podcast because we love it when we have new Patreon supporters. And we'd be very willing to make a new category of Patreon supporter if he would give us over 50,000 euros. Let's do that. Actually, maybe that's a bad idea. We shouldn't be accepting stolen money, Katie. (laughs) That's true. Those judges might be coming after us. Anyway, um, this week at least, even if Jens doesn't decide to donate his money, we've had loads of people sign up to support this podcast this week, which is so, so nice. So a big thank you goes to Pat Bader, Handy Yeva, Jane Coates, Victor Claren, S. Alvanides, Gwen Smith, Linard Jungling, Callum Kinghorn, and also uh, two people who were already supporting the podcast but decided just to be even more generous than before and increase their donations, Britta and Gavin McLean. Thank you, everyone, so much. We're so grateful that so many of you have decided to support us this week. We'd really like to carry on doing this podcast and all of you who become patrons really help that become a possibility. So please keep supporting us. You might not believe it, but I'm still enjoying spending so much time with Katie three years on um, and we actually got to see each other in recent life and I'm still learning new things about her in fact I learned a nice fact about her this week uh, a friend of hers from school told me about a time when um, she threw a ball up in the air and forgot she'd thrown it and it landed on her head 
Why are you telling this to members of the public? This is a breach of trust. So that they join our Patreon. <laughs> Let's go to Germany. Uh, we've had a good chunk of days now to process the election results. And actually, perhaps inevitably... It's not at all the abrupt end to the Merkel era that some of us might have imagined this moment to feel like. The results are mixed. Merkel's Conservatives got their worst ever score, but still basically a quarter of the vote. Just ahead of that, the Social Democrats. So the left is back, maybe, kind of. And as so often on this continent, it looks like we are in for a good long stretch of coalition talks. And it isn't at all clear who is going to end up governing Europe's biggest economy. Uh, and in fact, you might have noticed something different about the artwork on your podcast player this week. Care to explain, Dominic? Yeah, you might have seen this amazing photo of Merkel taken with parrots all over her just a few days before the election. Well, we have made a tribute to that. Well, we haven't. Eddie, wonderful Eddie Stock from Are We Europe has made a wonderful tribute to that incredible photo. I think the photo of the year. And that's why we've got parrots all over us. It's such an amazing, joyous picture. Um, so we've decided to keep this as our artwork until the German coalition talks are over. And maybe even afterwards, just because it's amazing. But yes, moving on to the interview. Uh, we love nerding out about elections on this podcast. We do. And we were cruelly robbed of the chance to do that after the election last week because our live show was recorded a little bit earlier than usual. So if you would indulge us, we wanted to chat to someone this week who could really unpick what just happened in Germany. Arndt Leininger is an assistant professor for political science research methods at the Chemnitz University of Technology in Eastern Germany, and he is a great unraveller of all things German politics. We gave him a ring about what just happened and what might happen next. A lot of the reporting on the results of the German elections has focused on the pretty incredible resurgence of the Social Democrats, who ended up in first place, something that many people would have said was unthinkable a few months ago. You, however, seem to think that overall it's not such a surprising set of results. Did you see this all coming? No, I didn't see this all coming. I mean, if you had asked me a couple of months ago, I wouldn't have bet on the outcome. It was an unprecedented election, right? This is the first time actually in German history that the incumbent is not running for re-election, which Germans are known for keeping our chancellors in office for a long time. Think about Adenauer, think about Kohl and now Merkel. And with that incumbency advantage gone, it was much more of an open playing field. And I think a lot of the success of the CDU in the past decades actually has been due to Chancellor Merkel's seemingly nonpartisan stewardship of the country. And with that gone, things have gotten much more in flux. So some of your predictions that you made ended up being pretty on the money, some of them a bit less so. But I'm super intrigued in general because your model doesn't use polling data, right? And I think a lot of people would have the same question. How do you predict an election without using polling data? So we've collected data on the party's results for the national election since 1961. And we, we constructed a statistical model to look at correlations over time and also um, the state of the economy and the tenure of the sitting government. And this allows us, without any polling data, as you said, to kind of estimate what is the long running electoral potential of the parties and how that should the election end up 
if it's just a, another regular election with nothing special happening. And, and that's how the past elections ran in Germany. Actually, our forecast, for instance, for 2017, which we've done in March of that year, was pretty close to the election result. I think we were just a percentage point worse than final pre-election polls. Of course, I'd, I'd like to kind of claim this for me, that we were super sophisticated in what we were doing. But a lot of it was also that it was just a very regular normal election in 2017, despite the, the AFD search and the discussion of the migration, everything else was like pretty normal. Uh, this election was much different. To be honest, we've, we've got the CDU quite wrong. Right? We've predicted that they could get 30%. They ended up with, uh, with much less, which my interpretation would be this was really a campaign issue and also a lack of the incumbency advantage and everything that happened since the last election. I mean, for a statistical model like ours, even the coronavirus pandemic is a short-term shock, right, which we didn't anticipate. And all of this, I think, contributed to that loss. The SPD did even better than our predicted long-term potential. So I think they've gotten some extra voters, but that they can't count on them to stay with them for the next election. But the results were pretty predictable for the other parties. So the Green Party was unhappy again because midterm polling was above 20% for them and they've ended up with 14 points something. But this is almost exactly what our model predicted. And this is already a huge gain that our model predicted because they had 8.9% in the last election. So this is societal change, more awareness for the climate. The Greens not as demonized as they used to be and they capitalized on that but they're not there yet to, to kind of get in first place. Yeah, and actually I wanted to ask you about the Greens. So you, as you say, you got their results pretty bang on the money when you predicted it back in June. Um, but at that point, they had been riding high in the polls and people have been talking about possibly having the first German Green Chancellor. Do you think they should be disappointed with this result or do you think it's actually pretty impressive? If you look at the past elections, it's been the same in 2017 and 2013, actually, that they have been polling much higher months ahead of the election than they ended up getting votes in the actual election. This hasn't been the case in elections before that, 2009 and earlier. And, and that, to me, reflects this societal change of climate change being more important, people recognizing it as a problem, not completely dismissing the possibility of, of voting for the Greens. But if you've got asked, couple of months ahead to the election, most people don't think about politics. It's pretty cheap to just say, yeah, the Green Party seem to be the party that, that's dealing with that issue. And then when the election comes nearer, you're thinking about how much gasoline costs and what other things it could mean for your lifestyle. And that changes. So I think the Greens can be happy. They've gotten what they should get according to their long-term potential. And, and they think they can be optimistic for the future because that should be set to increase. Like if we do a new forecast for the next election, they should get more votes. But of course, they could have hoped to gain more than that long-term potential, like the SPD did, right? They apparently had a very successful campaign getting these swing voters in, and, and the Greens didn't do that. And in terms of what happens next, I mean, the conversations are ongoing, but it does seem like Olaf Scholz is likely to end up as chancellor if everything goes according to plan for him. If he does end up as chancellor, what kind of chancellor do you think he might end up being? Because he's going to be the same person that, that he's been as finance minister, um, very matter-of-factly, not a very exuberant personality. But this is something that goes down very well with German voters. And um, in that sense, uh, as a person, he's very similar to Angela Merkel. 
And I think this was the advantage that the SPD capitalized that voters who were kind of undecided between SPD and the CDU, CSU, they were looking for kind of continuation of the current government and a similar personality in office. Scholz seemed to be better able to deliver that than Amin Laschet. So don't expect any major changes from him. One thing that many were commenting on is the fact that the uh, support for the far-right party, the Alternative für Deutschland, waned a bit compared to the last election. Do you think this is the start of a slow, long-term decline for that party? It might, but I wouldn't be too optimistic about that. Kind of put things in perspective first. They had this big surge in the 2017 election, right, where they became the largest opposition party because we had the current coalition. At that time... Integration, migration, refugees was the big topic in the election. Like we have these polls where people get asked, what are the top two issues for you in the campaign? And um, 50% said that was one of their top two issues. In 2021, it's down to 13% in that same poll. This is a massive decline. Still, they've got only slightly less than last time. Right. So in terms of the long-term potential, it seems that they just have cultivated a part of the electorate that is also somewhat isolated from these larger political developments that vote for that party, regardless what the issues of the campaign are. So I would say this is pretty much their potential. I don't think they're going to go away soon, but there's also not a big threat of them becoming more powerful, I think. And asking you to put your prediction hat back on for what might happen next. How long do you think we might be waiting to hear what government Germany ends up with? I mean, I know over there in the Netherlands where Dominic is, that they've been waiting how long now for a government, Dominic? Seven months. <laughs> is it going to be that bad? At the moment, I'm rather optimistic. It all seems to be leading up to an SPD, Greens and FDP entering into formal negotiations. This seems to be the most realistic uh, option at the moment for a number of reasons. The first one being that the CDU is in disarray or the union of CDU and CSU. There's a big public sentiment that the CDU has lost the election, that Olaf Scholz would be the better chancellor. That also makes the other coalition of CDU, CSU, Greens and FDP less likely. We had coalitions including Greens and FDP in 2017 when we were negotiating with CDU, CSU. And those broke down because of the FDP pulling out. So I think this is the most likely option we'll end up with and the parties will try to make sure that there's going to be a new chancellor holding the New Year's Eve address this year. Yeah, because the FDP are pretty far away from the Greens and the Social Democrats on quite a lot of policies, particularly on their taxing and spending policies, aren't they? I mean, I think people might hear a Liberal Party and might think of comparing it to Liberal Democrat parties or like centrist Liberal parties, but they're they're quite right wing fiscally, aren't they? I mean, in political science, we usually distinguish between uh, a socioeconomic dimension, so economic and social policy and a cultural dimension, kind of traditional authoritarian nationalist values versus green alternative values. On these two dimensions, it's a bit tricky with the coalition. All of the three parties, SPD, Greens, and FDP, are culturally to the left, like progressive, liberal, citizens' rights, rights for minorities, and so on. But it's more difficult on the economic dimension. SPD and Greens are kind of center-left, and the FDP is very much to the right. This will be difficult finding compromise there, especially in the area of climate policy, where the FDP 
favors market solutions and the Greens favor strict environmental regulations. So so that's going to be the big issue. I think they can put a lot of things to the side with these these cultural issues, some reforms there, but everything that costs money uh, that will be difficult. But it won't be easier with the other combination with CDU and a Greens and FDP, because actually then you open up this divide on the cultural dimension between the CDU and the Greens. So actually, I think also in that logic, maybe SPD, Greens, FDP is actually the easier option to negotiate. Thank you so much to Arndt for joining us. Uh, we were chatting earlier and Dominic described Arndt as Germany's Nate Silver, which I kind of love, even though I'm not sure how Arndt feels about that label. Uh, but he is a great person to follow on Twitter. So if you also enjoy nerding out about German politics, do follow him. We will put the link in the show notes. It's isolation inspiration time. Uh, but first of all, <clears throat> an announcement. We are thinking about renaming this segment. We're not really sure, listeners. We want your help. Uh, some people have suggested that, fortunately, now that lots of the continent is back open, isolation inspiration doesn't seem like that good a name for this segment anymore. Uh, but we do want to keep talking every week about European cultural recommendations and films and books. And it's just really fun to have an excuse to watch television all the time. So we need to know what to call it. Yeah, we've already had some great suggestions on our Patreon Facebook group. But if you have any other ideas, then please tweet them at us or send us an email. I think we'd also like to start putting it out to our listeners a bit more, as one of our patrons suggested. It might be a nice way to get a broader spectrum of recommendations from across this huge continent of ours. Yeah, it's true. Also in languages that uh, we don't speak between us. Uh, so what have you been enjoying this week? Yeah, well, actually, in that spirit, I uh, have a recommendation from one of our listeners, from Alex Dreschel. Alex is an interpreter at the EU, and he recommended a children's book aimed at kids aged three to six, which has been written and translated by staff in the translation service of the European Parliament. Aww. It's called Anna Learns a New Language, and it's available for free online in the 24 official European languages, both as an ebook and as an audiobook recorded by the interpreters themselves. I listened in English, which I realise now I really shouldn't have done. I should have read it in Dutch, um, because that would have been more in the spirit of the book, which is a very lovely tale of a little girl who moves abroad, starts a new school in a new country in a language she doesn't understand, at least at first. If you've got young kids, then I highly recommend it for a bit of bedtime reading, especially if you've got young multilingual kids. It's called Anna Learns a New Language, and it can be found on the European Parliament website. Not usually my go-to website for charming cultural content, but I was pleasantly surprised. Lovely. What have you been enjoying, Katie? Uh, well, I have to confess that I haven't been listening to that many podcasts recently, mostly because I've stopped listening to podcasts while cycling, because it was dangerous. Uh, and that makes me feel a little bit more responsible, but it does also mean that I'm listening to way fewer podcasts than before, which is sad. Uh, but I've been making one big exception to my lack of podcasts. I have been binging my way through the back catalogue of a podcast called The Darknet Diaries, which I heard originally about 
actually, from one of our listeners, Marcus. Do you know it? No, I don't. So it's been going for a few years now, and it is a podcast about hacking and cybersecurity, which maybe sounds really boring, but it really isn't. Uh, It's full of all of these stories about the darkest corners of the internet. And it is made by an American, a guy called Jack Resider. I think he used to be an IT guy, and now he makes this really great podcast. But loads of the stories are actually from here in Europe. And I wanted to recommend two episodes in particular. The first one is episode 87, which is about a Dutch ethical hacking collective called the Grumpy Old Hackers, who may have hacked the Twitter account of a certain Donald Trump. Remember him? Oh, it's those guys. We've talked about them before. Yes. And it's just a really enjoyable and quite nail-biting listen. And the other episode I really enjoyed recently was episode 74, Miko, which is about Scandinavian professional gamblers getting hacked in Barcelona. Uh, yeah, you really don't have to be a super computer nerd to enjoy the show. I really recommend it. Sounds great. I want to talk to you about Wally the Walrus in this week's happy ending. Okay. Wally has been on a tour of the coast of Western Europe over the past six months and making a ton of friends and a few boat-owning enemies along the way. He actually even has merchandise these days. Wally spent a lot of time in Tenby in Wales and in Cornwall, and he then went all the way down to La Rochelle in France and even Bilbao. In a few locations, they eventually realized they needed to build pontoons for Wally because he was sinking boats in every port he landed in. And if you see a picture of him, you'd understand why. He is enormous. He weighs around 800 kilograms. And there are some glorious photos of him lounging on boats and pontoons right across Europe. Oh, my God. He's huge. I'm just looking at him and the headline says he's so majestic. He is majestic and maybe that's why he's gained so many fans over the last six months and his fans were pretty nervous because he disappeared for about three weeks. There were headlines of where's Wally all across the continent for our American listeners. Wally is our name for where's Waldo which is actually originally Wally because it is a British book but the search is over this week he turned up in Iceland which is rather far away from his last noted location at the southwesterly point of Ireland how far away is that it's about 900 kilometers which is quite a journey especially considering he's traveled about 4,000 kilometers over the past six months and the good news is he's going in the right direction he's an arctic walrus who isn't meant to be hanging out in Bilbao his home is much further north and it looks like he's heading back there and of course It's by no means a real happy ending because his habitat is melting due to you-know-what. I knew this was going to be one of those happy endings that wasn't actually a happy ending. Well, How did I guess? It's a happy ending for him. It's just not a happy ending for the species. Our senior producer, Katz Laszlo, was telling me that walruses are at big risk from climate change and that they often get overlooked due to, I think, their more photogenic neighbours, the polar bears. Actually, scrap that. Wally the walrus is the most photogenic animal I've ever seen. Majestic. So I don't know why we overlook it, but I hope the interest in him and the publicity from his travels will wake some of us up to the plight of this beautiful blubbery species, the walrus. It certainly has for me. I'm also part of a beautiful blubbery species. (laughs) Interesting tidbit just before we close the show. Did you know that Wally or Waldo 
is called Charlie in French. Completely different. Whoa, I had no idea. They could have gone with a W name. He might be different in all kinds of countries, actually. We should take a poll of our listeners. Let's do that. That's all we've got time for this week. We'll be back next week with more tales from across the continent. If you miss us in the meantime, why don't you follow us on Twitter at EuropeansPod? And if Facebook and Instagram are working, then hmm. you could try us on Facebook by typing in the Europeans Podcast and on Instagram at Europeans Podcast. This podcast was produced by me and Wojciech Alexiak. Our senior producer is Katz Laszlo. This podcast is part of the Are We Europe family. You can find more like-minded continental podcasts at the link in the show notes. See you next week.